Good morning, Gateway family. It is great to see you this morning as you come in and make your way to your seats. I want to let you know about several opportunities that we have coming up. These are invitations for you to be involved in serving the community and in connecting here. So there's several things I want you to be aware of. First of all, there's three opportunities. You've hopefully seen these over your email or on the blog to help people in need. First of all, there's an opportunity to collect uh, books, educational books for an orphanage in Kenya. You've heard Emily Griffin, one of our members, is involved with Meskel's Children's Center of Hope in Kenya. And you see the picture of their school library. They are in dire needs of boosting the school's library. They're the orphanage and the Christian school in Kenya. And so they're collecting books. If you have educational books, good for kindergarten through fifth grade that your kids have outgrown, there's a collection bin that they're receiving books. A lot have already come in, and we're so thankful. But if you still like to contribute, we'll be receiving those for about the next three weeks. Also, you've already heard from Missy Cruz about the Capitol Heights Teacher Appreciation Week coming up in two weeks. There's Missy in the back. back there. So everybody turn around. There's Missy. This is April 3rd to 7th. They're collecting gift cards for teachers, drinks, other things. We just want to bless those teachers. It is a weary time of the school year. For those of you in the education system, and Capitol Heights is a struggling school, and we're trying to come alongside in practical ways and support the school and pray for the school. And so the things that are needed to help bless those teachers on the website, gatewaybaptist.com. You can see Missy after the service um, to find out how you can help bless those teachers. And hopefully you've already received the email. If not, if you haven't, you're not getting emails from us, let us know so we can get you on the list. But there's an opportunity to help the Montgomery Baptist Food Pantry. There's a ministry that Montgomery Baptist churches do together called the Love Loud Ministry Center downtown. And they're receiving food over the next week to restock their food pantry to help people in need and use that as tools to point people to the gospel. And so we're collecting food and hygiene products for that. If you're not sure what to contribute for it, go to gatewaybaptist.com. It's under news and events and you'll find that and we're receiving that out in the hallway out here. You'll see the sign right outside the church office to receive that. Now, three other opportunities coming up over the next month or so we want you to be aware of. First of all, and I can't believe it's already here, Easter is in two weeks. So we are almost to Easter. And so everything's on the website. You can go to gatewaybaptist.com for that. But there's a Good Friday service on Good Friday at 7 p.m., one-hour service for the whole family. There's a community sunrise service that Easter Sunday morning at 6.30 with our friends at Grace Presbyterian Church and Legacy Anglican Churches. We come together for that. And then, of course, we're here Easter Sunday morning with Bible study as normal at 9 and our Easter celebration at 10.30. So I hope you'll mark all that on your calendar and plan to celebrate Easter weekend with us. Also coming up in April, Secret Church. It was coming up April 21st. It's a Friday evening. If you've never done Secret Church with us, it's six hours of in-depth teaching with David Platt. This year we're doing a verse-by-verse study of the book of Jonah, and I'm so excited about this. It's here in the sanctuary from 6 p.m. till midnight. Yes, we go till midnight, sometimes till 1230. But it is a great opportunity to not only go deep in the Word of God, but we pray for the persecuted church. It's times of teaching mixed with times of prayer, and it's a live simulcast that we do here. So hope you'll be part of that. There is a registration for that, but there's no cost for Gateway members, so you should, and attendees, you should have that in your email. You can find it on the Gateway community page if you need the promotion code to be able to register for free. Last thing is we have a Bible reading marathon coming up downtown that churches do. So Dale Hathaway, one of our members, is up here, is going to come up and tell you more about the Bible reading marathon and how you can be involved. Thank you. Privilege again this year to be the director of the Capital City Bible Reading Marathon. And uh, this is an event that's held every year in May in conjunction with the National Day of Prayer. What we're asking for this year, there'll be more details coming out in the weeks to come. Um, Yes, it's in May, but that's here before you know it. What we need this year is uh, for Gateway to be able to support a volunteer um, shift, if you will, 
of one person to be a director and three people to be monitors. That's to help facilitate the reading of God's Word. And really the heart behind this is just to have God's Word read aloud over the city of Montgomery. We're going to do it downtown uh, at His Vessel Ministries, which is in the um, train station. Just a short walk from the Capitol, but we're going to do it in, indoors uh, at, uh, at His Vessel. We're going to read the New Testament starting on Friday, uh, May the 5th, and ending on Saturday, May the 6th. So right now we need four people that would be willing to sign up as a team to represent Gateway to cover one of the shifts. If you want more information, please come see me. I'll be glad to give you the details. Um, I, I told Sonny before, Sonny did it last year. CJ's done this a number of times. CJ's not here today. But if you want to talk to Sonny about what it's like to actually be on one of the teams, if you need some more information, let me, let me know. Training will be provided, so we're not going to leave you high and dry. Right now I just need to know who's willing to serve in this capacity. Four people. Um, to support reading God's Word aloud in, in May. So if you would, just let me know. Thank you. Thanks, Dale. Well, appreciate that. If you'll see Dale after the service, if you'd like to learn more about that. Well, let's turn our focus to the Lord. I just want to ask you to stand, please. I want to read God's Word. We're going to be studying. We're going to be singing about the gospel this morning and the hope that we have in Christ and our sins being forgiven and His righteousness being given to us. So I want you to hear from Colossians 2 this morning as we prepare our hearts to sing to the Lord. In Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, as we sing to the Lord this morning, let's rejoice in the fact that, that massive record of debt for our mass amount of sins has been nailed to the cross. Let's worship the Lord this morning. Come on, love the voice.
Psalm 130 and 131. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. God, thank you that with you there is plentiful redemption as we've been singing about this morning. Is the promise of the gospel that our sins are forgiven, that we are welcomed into your family by your death on the cross and we are brought to new life thank you so much for that God and thank you for that truth that unites us but as believers here at Gateway but believers across the world that we stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ thank you for dying for us thank you for humbling yourself and taking on the form of a servant and being obedient to death even death on a cross For the joy set before you, you endured the cross. You scorned its shame and you sat down at the right hand of the Father. Thank you. God, thank you for calling us into that. And I pray that that truth would come from our heads down into our hearts, that it would guide everything that we do in life. And Lord, as we bring these prayer requests before you today, it's a recognition of our weakness and our inability to do anything and our complete submission to you. And so we want to lift up our teenagers in the youth group here, God, that you would work in their hearts, that you would let the word that's being taught to them go down deeply, and that you would bring them to salvation and to closer walk with you. We pray for the Hope's ministry to Capitol Heights, to the students and teachers, and for this upcoming Teacher Appreciation Week. May the teachers there and the students there sense that what drives all of this work at the school is the gospel that there is a reason why people care for them, and it's because we have been cared for, and you have called us to take that truth and that love and compassion forward to them. So bless the teachers, the students, the administrators, and those people who are serving them. Lord, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters at Delray Baptist as they are in the, the process of searching for a new pastor. We pray that you would give them patience and trust in you and a sense of your guiding grace during this time in between pastors and in the decision that's coming next. 
We want to pray for Taylor and Sarah Fox as they continue to hold out the truth of the gospel in Strasbourg, France, in a place where there's such history of the church and yet so many people that have walked away. And God, I pray that you would give them just a sense of your work, your grace, your compassion for the people there in Strasbourg. God, thank you for calling us to be a part of your work. And as we give our offerings, either if we give them today or if we give them online, we recognize that this is a part of what you've called us to do to be a part of the kingdom. So we pray that you would give us hearts that are cheerful in supporting the work that you do. And finally, for Grady this morning, we pray that you would help him to share the words. We trust and we know that you have led him in study this week to give us the truth of the gospel today. And we pray that you would open up our eyes, open up our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say. We ask all of this in the powerful and compassionate name of Jesus. Amen. Fourth graders, you're dismissed to kids' worship. So first to fourth grade to kids' worship. And while they are on the move, I forgot to mention earlier, but there's an afternoon prayer time today at 4.30 that Greg and Cecilia Tilly. So Greg's right down here. And so I want to remind you that this is the second and fourth Sundays of the month. And so that is this afternoon here at 4.30 in the sanctuary. Why don't you find 1 Peter chapter 4 in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible app, 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, as we've been journeying through Peter's letter, Peter has been teaching us about our calling. He's been teaching us about our calling to know God, our calling to love God, our calling to live for Him as His people. He's been showing us our calling to pursue holiness, to live out who we say we are in Christ. As such, Peter has been teaching us all throughout this letter about resisting temptation, about not giving in to the pressures of this world, about seeking God's grace to live out our new identity in Christ by putting off whatever displeases God and by putting on Christ's likeness. But as Peter's been showing us over the last chapter or so, pursuing Christ, living out this calling and putting off temptation here comes with a cost. And so Peter's been teaching us a lot about suffering. We've seen suffering all throughout this letter, but we've been in a long stretch right now of many weeks where Peter's really been honing in on the reality of suffering, the hardships that come to us as we seek to live for Jesus in this world. Now I want you to glance back and see where we immediately have been before we get to our text this morning because it brings all that together. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I just want to read for us the first four verses, what we've seen over the previous two weeks because that sets the stage for where we're going today. But 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1 Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffice for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So that's where we've been the last two weeks. Today we're going to come to verses 5 and 6 of 1 Peter chapter 4. And as he continues to build on this flow of thought about holiness and suffering in our life, Peter's going to help answer a question that we need to ask. And there's a question for us for this morning. How do we not give in to temptation when the world judges us and pressures us to conform? How do we not give in to temptation when the world around us, the non-believers around us, the culture at large, pressures us and tempts us to conform to that? Now, if you think about it, friends, think about your own life in the last week or the last month or even going back further. How have you been tempted by non-believers? 
How have you experienced temptation from the culture at large? What are the things that have been put before you that are pulling at you, that your flesh wants, that takes you away from living out your God-given identity? But furthermore, as we'll see this morning, not only does the world tempt us, the world judges us when we do not follow the world's ways. How have you felt judged by the world? How have you experienced judgment from non-Christians because you are a follower of Christ? So friends, how do we not give in temptations when there's such pressure, such temptations, such judgments from the world around us? Now we're going to see the answer in verses 5 and 6 this morning. And to answer this question, Peter's going to return to some familiar themes, themes you've been seeing all throughout this letter. He's going to talk again about our identity as Christians. He's going to remind us about God as a holy judge. He's going to focus our minds back on eternity, things he's been doing throughout these previous three chapters. He's going to bring back up this morning... But he's going to present them in a very unique way in doing so. So as we read verses 5 and 6 this morning, be looking for those common themes you've been seeing develop throughout this letter. But be looking for how that answers the question, how do we not give in to temptation when we're judged and when we're tempted by the world? So look for that as we read. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 this morning, and I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Start with verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for this journey through 1 Peter and just the depth of riches that we find as we study your word. And we pray this morning as we dig into this text, God, that you would make it clear to us where this is another verse that many have struggled with over the years has been challenging for people to interpret. So I pray for clarity in explaining it this morning. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill each one of us to help us understand the unchanging truth of your word to give us conviction where we need conviction, to give us encouragement and hope where we need encouragement and hope. So Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in taking your word and applying it to our lives to form and shape us to be more like Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may sit down. Now to understand these verses, because these verses have been mistaught and confusing to people over the years, the answer to understanding them really comes in realizing what Peter does here, because his writing is very unique in these verses. Peter's writing with contrast here. And so to understand this text, the key to this is realizing Peter is presenting contrast in this text. In fact, there are three contrasts in this text. And if we look at the three contrasts, these things he's holding up different from each other, we begin to find the answer to our question of how do we not give in to temptation. So let's kind of unpack these verses by looking at the three contrasts of them this morning. The first contrast in verses 5 and 6 is a contrast between two types of people. There's a contrast between two types of people. Everyone in the world falls into one of these two categories. Every one of you in this room falls into one of these two categories. Either you're a follower of Christ or you're not a follower of Christ. You're either a believer in Christ or you're not a believer in Christ. And so Peter's going to paint a big contrast in these verses between those two groups. The first group he shows us in verse 5, these are non-believers. These are people who do not know Christ in a personal way. He begins with verse 5, but they. So the they here are the non-Christians. Now, how do we know that? Because of what precedes it, the context. And you go back to verses 3 and 4 that we read at the beginning. For the time has passed, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, as anyone outside of knowing God, what they want to do. And it gives this long list of sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Verse 4. With respect to this, they, the lost, the non-believers, they're surprised when you, the believers, 
Do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they, the non-Christians, malign you. Now verse 5, but they, the non-Christians, will give an account. So at the beginning, he's painting a contrast here by showing non-Christians, non-believers. And he's talking about all those who've ever lived who do not know God. Notice verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So all non-believers who've died in the past, all non-believers alive today, and all those who ever will come are in view here in verse 5. Again, this is a verse of contrast, so he contrasts this with believers, and that is in verse 6. In verse 6, there's a day at the end of it. Notice the last phrase, that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is where this gets confusing, because there's two days in this text. Verse 5's day is non-Christians. Verse 6 is the day is Christians, people who really know Jesus, who know His saving grace that is evidenced by His transforming grace. Now, how do we know He's switched to talking about Christians in verse 6? Because He qualifies it. He tells us. He said that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. He's describing believers who have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit-given faith, the Holy Spirit within us, this is in, which is exactly what we see when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In Him you also, believers, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So when Peter here is describing people who live in the Spirit, he's talking about people who have experienced the Holy Spirit, giving them faith, and the Holy Spirit sustaining their faith. If you go back to verse 6, though, it says the strange phrase there, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, what in the world is Peter talking about here? This is a reminder of what he's already showed us before. You saw several weeks back that when the Holy Spirit gave Christ a resurrection body, the promise that we too will get resurrection bodies as well. And that's what Peter is reminding us. That just as Jesus has a resurrection body, that followers of Christ will get one as well because of the work of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 11. This may be an interesting morning with power blinking. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, unless the computer, the computer died. There you go. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what is Peter telling us here? He's contrasting the non-believers who do not know God with believers. But notice this, it's not just believers of, oh, I prayed a prayer, I got baptized, I'm okay now. These are people who are true Christians, evidenced by the fact the Holy Spirit gave them faith. The Holy Spirit dwells within them and is changing them. And the Holy Spirit has assured them that they will get a resurrection body like Christ one day. And they are living with that hope in view. That's the group that Peter is addressing here. This is not a group that goes, I prayed the prayer, I'm okay. This is a group that knows God as evidenced by the Holy Spirit's work, transforming them and giving them this hope of resurrection one day as well. And Peter reminds us how we have this hope. Look at the beginning of verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached. This phrase, the gospel was preached, is just one word in the Greek language that Peter wrote. This is not the general word to announce something. This is a specific word for the good news going forth. That we believe, friends, we have the hope of eternity because God drew us through the teaching of his word, through the preaching of his word. There is no salvation in Christ apart from God drawing through the word of God so that we know him. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us this. In Romans 10, do we have that one there? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So you may be thinking, okay, that's great, but what about this next phrase here back in verse 6? This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. 
Okay, as if we can think we're not going to get past all the hard teachings of Peter. Here it comes again. What is Peter talking about? The gospel was preached. The good news of Jesus was preached even to those who are dead. Well, notice the word even to. He's not saying exclusively this, but this is one group of believers who the gospel has gone forth to. Who are the dead? It's not some mystical thing. This is not the spirits in prison. The dead here are simply believers who've already died and gone to heaven. The believers who've already died and gone to heaven. This is those who've gone before us, who heard the gospel, we just saw in Romans 10, who believed it and who know Christ and are now in heaven with him. The dead here are those who already have believed in Christ. Now, why would Peter add this in here? Why is that helpful for this text? Well, remember the context. He's writing to the early church here. And for the early Christians, there was a lot of concern about what happened when you died. There was a lot of uncertainty of why hasn't Christ already come back and what's this going to look like? And so there was a lot of uncertainty in their heart about those who had gone before who had already already died. So scripture is full of assurances to them and to us about those who we know who love Jesus who've already passed away. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Now just pause right there. That means there was a danger in the early church and a danger now to be uninformed and to miss God's will on something here. And particularly it's about those who are asleep, this metaphor for death. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who've died who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now in verse 14, he carries on. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul addresses it to the early church that here's the hope you have that those who believed in Christ, though physically dead, are alive with Christ in heaven. Peter addresses it here in our verses as well to give believers hope here. So the big picture now, back to 1 Peter 4, is there's a contrast here. There's a contrast in verse 5 with non-believers who will be judged. We'll come to that in a minute. The living and the dead. And then in verse 6, there's the contrast here with believers, those who are alive and those who already are dead but have believed in Christ. So Peter's painting a big contrast for us between Christians and non-Christians. That leads to our second contrast, which gets to the heart of this text. There's a contrast here of judgments. There's a contrast here of two different types of judgments. So this is where this text gets confusing for people. The word they is used in verse 5 and 6, but in one it's the they is non-Christians, and verse 6 is Christians. The word judged is used in verses 5 and 6, but it's two very different judgments that Peter is doing here. He's giving us a poetic writing style that contrasts things to help us see the difference to give us hope. And Peter's going to contrast the judgments that Christians will experience with the judgments that the lost will experience. So he takes the two groups, believers and non-believers, and he's going to contrast judgments that Christians experience with judgments that the lost will experience. Now, what is he talking about here? Let's start with the judgments that Christians will experience. He is not talking about judgment from God. We just sang about that all morning this morning. That we don't have to fear judgment because Christ has taken the penalty of our sin. When I stand before God, and if you're in Christ, when you stand before God one day, our sin is already dealt with. We will never find the wrath of God directed at us because it was all put on Christ instead of us. So this is not talking about judgment from God. Peter's talking about the judgments we experience from the world. He's talking about the judgments that we will certainly experience in this life from the lost people around us. Verse 6, this is the judgment Christians experience. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. That we will be judged in the flesh the way people are. This is a reality check for us, that we will be judged by non-Christians. 
no matter how hard we try to be nice, and friends, that we should try to be nice, okay? This is not an excuse to be jerks, okay? We should try to be nice to the lost around us, but the reality for us is no matter how hard we try, if we know Christ, we will experience judgments from the lost around us. Friends, that is a reality that I do not like, but that God in His grace gives to us. I struggle really deep down with wanting to be liked. I struggle deep down wanting to be accepted. I really, really want people to be pleased with me and to like me. And I suspect many of you deal with that same thing as well because that is a root sin that's deep in the hearts of many of us that leads to many other sins. The reason why this is given to us to warn us about this because if we are living to be accepted by people, if we are what's driving us is we want to blend in and be liked and loved by everyone, we will have a tendency to not live for Christ. Because if that is what's driving us, we will not say the things that we are called to say. And instead, we will find ourselves doing and saying things that we know is against God's will because we so much want to be accepted and loved and tolerated by people around us. Because we feel that pressure to want to fit in and to conform and not rock the boat. But we are warned right here, and if we walk with Christ, we will be judged by the world. Now, how does the world judge us? Peter tells us two ways. One of them is with the text we saw last week. So look back up in verses 3 and 4. Here's one way we experience judgment from non-believers. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery or sin, and they malign you. So the one way we experience the judgment of the world is we are told we will be maligned. Now, the word maligned means to be spoken, to speak evil of someone, to defame someone, to hurt the reputation of someone. If you notice here in verse 4, we're not told that the world might malign us. We are told with certainty the world will malign us. Friends, in all the years I've walked through Christian bookstores and places so Christian literature, I've never seen that on a coffee mug. We love that I can do all things through Christ, right? I've never seen a coffee mug with all its patterns, and it says, the world will malign you, rest assured. Like, that's not the promise that we cling to, but it's the promise of the Word of God, so we know what to expect in this life. We will be maligned, we will be spoken ill of by non-Christians for not doing the things that they do. Peter just told us that, that whole long list in verse 3 that Rick explained to us last week. We will be maligned for doing things they do not do, whether it's helping people in need or being merciful or showing forgiveness or love or sharing the gospel with them. We'll be maligned for those things. We'll be maligned or spoken ill of for not embracing what the lost embrace. Turn on the news. We see that with the sexual revolution, all the sexual ideologies. The Christians are maligned for not embracing those things. We'll be maligned for believing things the world does not, whether that's the exclusivity of truth that Christ is the only way or the reality of hell or God's plan for the family, we'll be maligned for the things that we do believe in and embrace. We'll be maligned by the world throughout our lives. Peter's already told us that. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, another promise from the Lord. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Again, this doesn't give us an excuse to be a jerk, right? We're still to be kind and live the gospel out before people. So that when they speak against you, not if they speak, but when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The reality, friends, is we seek to live out the gospel before a lost world. They're not like, oh, Christians are such nice people. We'll tolerate them. The promise of Scripture is that we will be called evildoers even as we seek to do good. Friends, this happened in the early church when Peter was writing. You see it happen in Nero's time and the persecution that's coming soon after this letter. You see it all throughout church history. 
If you follow the global church, things we'll be talking about like in secret church coming up in a few weeks, you see it in the Muslim world and Muslim countries where Christians are called evil and they're considered so evil it's okay and lawful to murder them. In some of those countries, you see it in communist countries like China, where the communist government calls Christians evil and persecutes them. And for instance, it's happening in our own culture as well, that all over the world, throughout world history, Christians are called evil because we embrace the truth of Scripture. No matter how hard we try to be nice, and again, we should try to be nice, we will still be maligned in this world. And the reality is, friends, none of us like to be judged. I don't like to feel judged. I know that you don't like to feel judged either. And so there's a pressure that comes with that to blend in, a pressure that comes with that to want to be accepted. And so therefore there is a very real temptation to not pursue holiness, a very real temptation to not fight sin in your life because you don't want to feel that judgment of being different. We are judged because we are maligned for being different. But there's another way that believers are judged, and that's in verse 6 this morning here. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that they're judged in the flesh the way people are. Now, what in the world does that mean, that we're judged in the flesh the way people are? What Peter's talking about is the fact that the Christians are being judged for having a wasted life. The Christians are judged for having a wasted life. Notice he comes off right as about talking about the hope that we have that the Christians who are dead are with Christ. He's pulling off that imagery of those who already died and saying you're now judged in the flesh the way people are. This is the reality of non-Christians looking at the life of a Christian who's died and being like, man, that was such a waste. This is the judgment the world does and say, look, you believe in an all-powerful God, but hey, your friend died just like mine did. Your friend spent his or her whole life trying to fight sin and trying to do all this good, and look, he's in the tomb now just like my friend. Your God still let him get cancer and die. What a waste. It's that judgment from the world that all these efforts we spent to do good, all these efforts we spent to try to live for holiness and missing out on things the world says was such a waste of a life. And friends, we may not hear it quite that boldly, but the pressure is around us because that's the message that is being conveyed. And that can lead us to the temptation to doubt to doubt the truth of Scripture about what is important to God, to doubt the goodness of God as we walk through the hardships of life, temptations to doubt the promises of eternity or to doubt God's seriousness about holiness. And so Peter is showing us as we walk through this life, we will be judged by the world. We'll be maligned for being different and we'll be ridiculed for having wasted our lives. Remember, this is a verse of contrast. So he's contrasted believers and non-believers. He's going to contrast judgments. The first judgment he was showing us are the judgments that we experience now and will keep experiencing our lives. But there's a second judgment he's going to contrast it with. He's going to contrast that with the judgment that non-Christians will one day experience. The judgment that non-Christians will one day experience. This is now the judgment from God on all those who do not love him and follow him. Go to verse 5, because there's a word, there's judgment here, but it's a totally different type of judgment. But they, the non-believers, will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The they, the non-believers who malign Christians. They, the non-believers who judge Christians' lives as being wasted. They, any non-Christian who does not know God and love God, they will be judged by God himself. Notice how God is described here in verse 5, that he is ready to judge. This is a picture of his, his coming judgment, his imminent judgment, that he, in fact, will judge. And friends, that's not the picture of God that is popular today, a God who is ready to judge and whose judgment is coming. I love how C.S. Lewis said it many, many years ago. He said, we won't know not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. 
We want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who likes to see young people enjoying themselves, and his plan for the universe was simply that at the end of each day it might be said a good time was had by all. And that's the, what our culture embraces. A God in heaven just kind of winks at sin, who's the grandfather who just wants you to have a good time. That's not the picture of Scripture. And Peter makes it clear here that God is ready to judge all those who do not love him. God is holy and he will judge every sin. Peter's told us this twice. He told us back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, when he introduced the concept of judgment. If you call on him his father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. He brings it back up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, talking about the example of Christ. When Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him, to the father who judges justly. Now we come back to verse 5 again as Peter hits this theme again. They, the lost, will give an account to, give to him, to God, who is ready to judge. So do you see the contrast that Peter's making here at the heart of this text? That the lost who judge Christians are ultimately the ones who will be judged. The lost who judge Christians by maligning them, the lost who judge Christians by thinking your life is a waste because you're living for God, they will be the ones who will be ultimately judged. Yes, they will be judged for maligning Christians. Yes, they will be judged for thinking our lives are a waste, but they will also be judged ultimately for not believing in God, for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, for their rebellion, for their sin. And friends, that means for us that those who tempt us, even those who persecute us, those who cause pain and suffering in our lives, do not get the last word. God does. God gets the last word. That means the mocking of the world against our faith and against our God and against us, that is not the last word. God gets the last word. So Peter's painting contrast for us between believers and non-believers, between the judgment the world gives to Christians and the judgment God will give to the lost at the end of time. And that leads to our third contrast here. And the third and final contrast of this text is, the, is a contrast of eternal destinies. A contrast of eternal destinies. First, he's going to show us the eternal destiny of the lost. All those who do not know Christ, those who will be judged by God. Go back to verse 5. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Notice that first phrase there, they will give account. And friends, this is a bookkeeping term. This is a term that was used in the time when someone owed a debt. There was a ledger of it, a record keeping, and a time would come they would be called in to give an accounting of, to pay those debts. What that is showing us, that means God is aware. He has a record of every sin ever committed. And there's people who die in this life thinking, I've gotten away with this. No one has ever seen this. No one knew I thought that. No one knew I did that. The reality check of 1 Peter is God does, and he has a record of it that you will see when you stand before him one day. Every sin is on the books and will be paid for. And for those who do not know Christ, where their sins are not taken by Christ, that means they will have to pay for it themselves. Even death itself is not an escape for a sinner. Those who, again, who die thinking, I got away with that. No one knows when they die and close their eyes for the last time on earth, they will stand before a holy judge. And those things they thought they escaped with are right before their eyes on the books for them to give an account of. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 tells us this. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. There will be an accounting for of everything that has been done. And a few verses later, we're told more of what that will be like in Romans chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, notice this, there will be wrath 
and there'll be fury. Again, this is not the attributes of God that is popular to talk about, friends, but the testimony of Scripture is that those who give an account before God and they do not know Christ, they will experience the wrath and the fury of a holy God. Then in verse 9, we're told there will be tribulation distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. And if you think about this, this judgment, I said earlier that God gets the last word. There is a literal last word that comes for that judgment. It's terrifying. Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. The last word the non-believers hear from the Lord is, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those who thought they've gotten away in this life with their sins, those who thought they've gotten through this life maligning Christians or mocking Christians, they will hear at the end of time, I never knew you. Depart from me. And where are they departing to? Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 41. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They're departed, they're sent to hell. Now, friends, I think we really struggle to believe that truth. We would confess, and in our confession of faith, we would say, Oh, yes, hell is a real place. I believe that hell is real. But, friends, functionally, do we actually live like we believe this truth of what will happen to those who do not know Christ? If we really grasp the reality of hell, friends, how much more would we weep for those we know are on that path? How much more would we pray with the, for those who are on that path? How much more would we plead with them that are on that path? And how much more, friends, would we rejoice every day knowing that God has taken us? We were running headstrong down that path, and he picked us up and turned us and took us off that path and brought us to himself. So Peter is contrasting for us the destinies, and he tells us the destiny of the lost those who do not know God. Now he's going to contrast that with the destiny of believers, of those who know Christ and have been changed by him. And that's in verse 6. We've already seen it, but let's go back to it because there's an important contrast here. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. Though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what is our destiny? We saw it earlier. It's eternal life with God. And it's that hope of that resurrection body one day. When we're in God's presence forever and there's no more pain and no more suffering, no more being maligned by the world, no more temptations from the world around us, perfection with God for all eternity. Why does Peter remind us of that? Friends, because we forget it so often. And so Peter puts it back before us once again to remind us that this world is not our home. This world is not what we are to be living for. These trials you are going through today or will go through, they are not for forever. We need to fix our eyes on eternity when we're with Christ forever, when there will be no more sufferings or hardships or pain, where we're no longer maligned, where we're no longer judged, but to not expect that here in this life now. To not expect God's going to give us an easy life of getting from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, wealthiest, most comfortable way possible. That's coming in eternity, but that's not yet. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. I think we have that one up there, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction. Again, just pause there. We've looked at it many times, friends. But the being maligned, the being ridiculed, the temptations that come, the sufferings, the hardships, Paul says they're light. He's not trivializing our pain or your pain or his own pain. He's looking in the eyes of eternity that this life whether it's 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, is short and fleeting compared to eternity. And these light momentary afflictions, God is using to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And friends, if we know Christ, that we will be judged wrongly by the world throughout our lives. Remember, God gets the final word. And what is his final word for us? Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The last word 
for believers is really the ushering into a whole new season of eternal life with us. Come. You've been chosen by the Father. You've been given eternal life. You've been held to this point by the Holy Spirit. Come be in the presence of God forever. That is the word that we get to hear. So Peter gives us contrast. Contrast between those who love Christ and those who don't. Gives us a contrast between the judgment that the world gives to believers and the judgment that God will give on the lost. And then he contrasts destinies. The last word believers here. And then the last word that non-believers hear. So let's bring all that back together. How do we not give into temptation? Friends, the world is pressuring you. The world is pressuring me. There's temptations everywhere we turn. We feel those, those pressures of the world. And so there's temptations from deep within us to want to conform. How do we not give in when the world judges us, when the world pressures us to conform? And here's the answer from this text I want you to see. It's a challenge for us. Do not compromise with the world that pressures you. Rather, turn your focus to eternity and remember that God has the final word. Friends, when the temptation is coming this week, for whatever that sin is that you keep struggling with, turn your eyes and think about eternity, and remember God has the final word. When there's people who are causing suffering and hardships and difficulties in your life, you don't have to be vindictive now. Turn your eyes to eternity. God has the final word. And friends, in my own heart, and I suspect in yours, we need to quit pretending that the culture is going to like us. Because there's so much dangerous teaching that's coming out by Christians today who just think we can somehow accommodate the culture. And if we just embrace certain things from the culture, then they're going to like us, friends. It doesn't matter what we do. If we are in Christ, the world is not going to accept us. The world hated Jesus and it will hate us. Again, this doesn't give us an excuse to be a jerk. We're still called to love well and to pursue people well. But we must not be naive and somehow think the world is going to love us. Rather, we need to turn our hope to God to God's grace that will sustain us to eternity, to remind us of what our future with him will be like, and yet to remind us as well of the future of those who oppose him and oppose his people. We need to turn our focus to eternity, remembering that God has the final word on us, and God has the final word on others as well. And friends, if we can really embrace that eternal perspective, it will free us from giving up when life gets hard. It'll free us from compromising when temptations come. And friends, it'll free us from getting angry and vindictive when the world hurts us. Because we know that this life is not all that there is. And there is a holy judge who has forgiven us, who tells us what's to come for us, but who will judge every sin and will make all wrongs right, friends. Do not compromise with the world. Today, tomorrow, this week, even though the pressures come, remember eternity. Remember God and his final word. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that you are a good God. We are thankful that you are a merciful God, and yet we're thankful that you're a holy God. So Lord, our hope is not coming to you in any of our own righteousness, God. We have none. We come to you as filthy sinners who have offended you day by day, moment by moment. Even our best intentions throughout our life are tarnished and tainted by our sins. So we come to you not with anything we can bring except for our sin and our guilt, but we come to you knowing that Christ has forgiven us. God, we come to you knowing that when Jesus died on that cross, all of our sin was put on him. And so when he cried out, it is finished, it really was. The punishment that, that I should have spent an eternity in hell paying for, Christ bore in a moment and took care of it in a moment so that I can stand before you clothed in his righteousness. God, what an incredible thought. Yeah, we want to say thank you for that. Thank you for looking upon us in our helpless state and nailing all of our sins to the cross. And yet, Lord, even though we know we stand forgiven before you, even though we know we belong to you, Lord, we confess our hearts are so prone to run after our old ways. 
And that's why your word gives us so many reminders to put off the passions of flesh, to put off our old ways, because God, you know how quickly we turn our eyes from you and look at this world and run after this world. And we just confess, Lord, we don't like to be judged by the world. And Lord, you know in each of our lives what that compromise has looked like even this week. And those ways that we didn't want to be different, those ways that we did not do what you've called us to do because we were hesitant because of what people might think. Lord, would you forgive us for the people-pleasing that's so common in our lives? And God, would you so fix our eyes on eternity and your sovereignty and your power and what you have promised us will happen, that you free us from that pull that the world has over us. That we want to be a people who love you, but Lord, we know we can't do that on our own. So Lord, would you give us your Holy Spirit this week to fill us, to strengthen us? Would you give us a love for your word to run to it this week, that as we see your revelation, we see your will, Lord, that it would transform us. So Lord, we just ask simply for much, much grace to do what we cannot do, that is to love you well, to say thank you this week, and Lord, to seek lives that do not follow the pressures that come to us, but that rest securely knowing we are held and loved by God. Lord, give us grace to focus on that all this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song? We're going to sing Jesus, Thank You. And as you think about what God has saved you from, I pray this would be a reflection to him, a worship to him, a thankfulness to him for what we have in Christ. Sing the mystery of the cross. The mystery of the cross I cannot of Calvary You the perfect Holy One crush your son You drink the bitter cup reserved for me Your blood has washed away my sin Jesus thank you Father's right
But take just a minute where you're standing and continue to thank the Lord in prayer now for what you just sung, the truth you declared. But then ask Him now for much grace to live a life this week that is shaped by understanding what Christ has done for you. And if there's some sin that you've been struggling with over this last week, would you ask God for much grace to fight that sin this week, not in your own efforts, but in the victory Christ has given you? I'd like for us to close by reading a scripture out loud together. So if you look up on the screen, I want us to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 16 to 18. Would you say it out loud and let's close with this together. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lord, that is our prayer this week, that we will look to the things that are unseen to fix our eyes on eternity and that we would rest in what you have done for us and what you're still going to do. Give us much grace to live that way this week with eternal perspective, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday.